2008 when I started my PhD. My PhD was focused on evolutionary aspects of fungi. And then I moved to the, to Sweden to do a postdoc at the biology department where I'm today. And then I stayed because I really liked the working environment here and the research done. I also changed a little bit slightly my research. So I added components to my research, as I can explain a bit later. And then eventually two years ago, I got a position as a lecturer here at the university. And now I've been forming gradually my own research group. We are working on um, a number of aspects. So a big part of my research is related to fundamental questions on fungal biology. So we want to understand how fungi work, particularly how the metabolism of fungi works. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest today is Dimitrios Flutas. He's a researcher, principal investigator, part of BECC, Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services and a Changing Climate. That's what he's, uh, he's studying. We're going to talk about mushroom-forming fungi. So, Dimitrios, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Hello, Richard. Thank you for having me. I'm doing very well. How are you doing? Good. I didn't have it in your bio, but are you associated with a particular university? Or do you have an organization that's, uh, that you're under that's, that's studying this material? I'm an associate senior lecturer for the last two years at the biology department at Lund University in Sweden. Lund is uh, located at the southern part of, of Sweden, very close to Denmark and Copenhagen. Well, tell me a bit about your background, how you got into studying mushrooms or fungi, and then we'll mm-hmm. talk about your current research. Okay. So originally Greek, I was doing my bachelor's in, at the University of Athens and in Greece. That was back sometime between 2000 and 2004. And then I took a course that was related to the systematics and taxonomy of fungi and higher plants. And then I got very fascinated by fungi and particularly the diversity and their metabolic versatility. So I decided to do my bachelor's project at the university with a fungal group. And then after this, I worked a little bit at the university after I just finished my degree, uh, again with fungi. And then I decided that uh, I really wanted to do a PhD. So I moved to the U.S. and then I did a PhD at Clark University in Massachusetts with David Hibbett. And that was in 2008 when I started my PhD. My PhD was focused on evolutionary aspects of fungi. And then I moved to the, to Sweden to do a postdoc at the biology department where I'm today. And then I stayed because I really liked the working environment here and the research done. I also changed a little bit slightly my research. So I added components to my research, as I can explain a bit later. And then eventually two years ago, I got a position as a lecturer here at the university. And now I've been forming gradually my own research group. Yeah, that's excellent. So what, what are some of the projects right now? What are you studying and trying to figure out 
with mushrooms? We are working on um, a number of aspects. So a big part of my research is related to fundamental questions on fungal biology. So we want to understand how fungi work, particularly how the metabolism of fungi works. Uh, and we are trying to understand how fungi have learned to break down organic matter. And as you probably know, fungi are uh, some of the most amazing recyclers of um, recycling agents, let's say, of natural ecosystems. So basically, they can break down pretty much a lot of the material that you see out there. Um, so we're trying to understand how fungi do this. So that's the functional part of it. But I also have a very interest in evolutionary biology. So I'm not only how fungi can break down organic matter, for example, cellulose, lignin, which are major wood components, but also I want to understand when these processes first appeared and how they have evolved and how they are still evolving, evolving today, right? So this is... A, yeah, that, that brings to mind a question. Um, mm-hmm. Do fungi break down material when they're in their non-fruiting stage, when there's no mushrooms, or does it accelerate when the mushrooms come out? No, most of the decomposition of the breaking down of organic material happens actually when there is no fruit bodies around. So for most of the time, we don't see fungi when they are in soil or when they are in a piece of wood in forest you don't really see the fungi. So the body of the fungus is actually inside the material that is decomposing. And when you start seeing the fruit bodies is actually the end of the process, right? So what happens is that the the fruit bodies, the mushrooms, are the reproductive organs of the fungus, right? That's where the spores are produced. So if you start seeing the mushrooms, it means that a lot of the material has been decayed or we are very close at at the end of the season. And then the fungus decides that it's time to produce the spores so it can colonize a new substrate or it can release those spores so they can stay dormant until the next growing season, right? So for most part of the composition, we really don't see fungi. It's only when they are ready to reproduce that we actually see the mushroom. Hmm. Okay. So when um, does anyone know, I mean, I guess people have done experimentation with substrate and material that needs to be broken down and they put mycelium in it um, and tracked it over time to see how the breakdown occurs? Like, has anyone done time-lapse type material where they can observe yeah. it? We, did this, we do this quite routinely. So we want to understand how not only the end product of the composition, but also we want to understand how this proceeds, right? And if you think complex materials, for example, wood, uh, it will take several months to a few years to completely break down this type of tissues. So very frequently what we do, we inoculate a fungus in the lab on a material that we are interested to decompose. And then basically we select time points. And obviously we cannot have time points of years, but in the lab at least, but we can have up to a couple of months, for example, 60 days. And then you select to sample and try to see what happens to the material as it decomposes gradually, right? For example, if you have hydrolysis or oxidation and so on. Of course, you can do this also in the field. And there is some really nice studies uh, done in the field where you can either, for example, you can um, leave wood in the forest in specific setups, and then you can follow and see how this material decomposes over time. You can try to see how which fungi come first into the wood and which fungi will appear in later stages of decomposition. And that you can follow for two, three years, for example. 
Uh, right now, we are doing an experiment at Abisko. It's a it's an area, it's a national park at the northern part of Sweden, so it's basically in the Arctic. And what we're trying to do, we are trying to simulate what is going to happen with climate change. So we're trying to imitate what is going to happen if we have a few degrees warming in, in the Arctic. And to understand how the composition will change in those environments, we have buried pieces of wood in the soil, in the Arctic soil. And then what we do, we try to uh, warm up artificially those plots where we have buried our wood and try to see what is going to happen, whether the, the composition, for example, accelerates or decelerates or, or whether there are chemical differences in how the composition of wood happens. And of course, someone will ask, why is this so important? We want to understand how carbon cycling works in the Arctic because um, maybe several people know that the Arctic soils hold actually large amounts of carbon in the form of organic material that just doesn't decompose. And we are worried that if the Arctic is getting warmer, there is a good chance that these microbes, fungi, but also bacteria, will start breaking down this material faster and faster, releasing that carbon into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So they all right, they take a piece of wood. What do they decay it into though? You said they release carbon dioxide, sure. But um, what else do they, do they decay wood into? What kind of products? So in the intermediate stages, so wood has three major components, right? And this is uh, lignin, cellulose, and hemicellulose. Uh, cellulose and hemicellulose are carbohydrates, and they are basically composed of simple sugars, let's say, in complex forms, but the monomeric, the monomers of those compounds, of those molecules is just simple sugars like glucose, for example. So these are good energy and carbon sources, and these are what the fungi are aiming for. So what they're going to do, they're going to take those large polymers, for example, cellulose, and break it down gradually into smaller and smaller pieces until you have simple sugars, and then they can use those sugar, sugars in order to grow. In the while they're growing, they're going to burn some of those sugars, similarly to what we are doing in our own cells, and they're going to produce carbon dioxide that is going to be released into the atmosphere. Part of the wood will never be completely degraded, decomposed. For example, lignin is not so useful for fungi because it's not a good energy and carbon source. So what they're going to do, they have specific mechanisms that they can basically separate in a way, ignore either ignore lignin or completely oxidize it. And then eventually that lignin will end up being smaller, small fragments that will get incorporated into the soil matter. So a lot of the soil that you see out there is basically a mix of what is left out of the composition of plant material, for example, leaves or wood. And also, of course, part of uh, microbial tissues, microbial cells that have accumulated over thousands of years, right? 
So part of what is not decomposed out of wood decomposition will eventually end up being part of the soil. Well, how much of, how much of the uh, material on a log, for instance, gets decomposed and over what time period? You know, what, what, what's, look, what is, what's left look like? Okay, so the, the, the timing really depends on the, on the environment that you have found. So, for example, if you are up in, on the Arctic, in the northern part of Sweden or in Alaska or in northern parts of Canada, for example, uh, you have very slow decomposition. So anything that falls on the ground from those large conifers, for example, will stay there for a very long time, simply because for microbes to be able to break down organic matter, they need two things. They need water and they need good temperatures. But in the Arctic or in the tundra, the growing season is very short, right? We have a very short summer period. So this is the period that microbes can break down the organic matter. So that's not enough time to decompose everything. So a lot of that material accumulates over time. If you go on the other hand on the tropics, and there you have a very high humidity, you have rain pretty much for a good part of the year, and you have a very stable temperature of you know, 25 to 28 degrees, that's perfect for microbes like fungi. So then the organic material is broken down very quickly. Basically, the composition in the tropics starts already while the leaves are on the trees many times. So the timing really depends. And in the tropics, you have very fast decomposition. Uh, within a few weeks, you can have, for example, material completely decomposing versus in the in the tundra or in colder or in drier climates, you can have a very slow decomposition, right? So now you, so you also asked how does the, that material looks like, right? Can you hear me? Yeah, I was going to ask you what, right. So as a decompose, let's say in the tropics, what does the material look like? Let's say a fallen log, you know, how does it uh, decay and what, what's left? What is left really, now really depends on the types of, if we talk about fungi, and particularly for wood, it would really depend on the type of decomposition that these fungi cause. So there are different, one can say there are different mechanisms to break down this wood. But what you're left usually with, uh, for the majority, I would say, of fungi, you are left with a material that looks really uh, fibrillose in appearance and quite discolored and is mostly composed of cellulose. We don't understand exactly why cellulose becomes eventually so, or we partly understand why cellulose remains behind. But basically from the original wood where you had lignin, cellulose, and hemicellulose, hemicellulose is utilized very quickly. Part of the cellulose is utilized and then lignin gets oxidized, but is not used as a carbon source. And then at the end of the composition and after a year or two years, you have just a lot of soft material that is basically cellulose that remains. And that will be continuously utilized now by other microbes that will start colonizing the wood until eventually there is nothing left, right? But that process can take now, when you have a well-decomposed a well decomposed piece of wood, you can take, you can still see some pieces of wood laying on the forest floor for about 10 years, right? So it, again, it depends on the timing, on the climate that you are, the type of ecosystem that this piece of wood is found in. You said that you, you understand partially why cellulose is formed. What, what does that mean? Why? Like why is it formed? We, we, we understand partly why it remains so much of it behind, right? So as I said before, cellulose is a good carbon source, right? So you would expect that it would be utilized 100%. But this is not the case for at least the large, large majority of fungi. Uh, and a lot of it remains behind. What we think 
is the reason, and this is a very active area of research here, is that cellulose itself, um, to explain this in a very simple way, is imagine that it's a small fibrils that, and if you look into those fibrils, you will see that basically they have a very highly ordered structure. Basically, they look like crystals. By having those fibrils very tightly packed, what the plant manages to do, man, um, it makes cellulose very recalcitrant, very difficult to break down. And we think that as the composition proceeds, eventually what accumulates behind is those uh, parts of cellulose that are very difficult to break down because of their high crystallinity. To give you an idea, high crystallinity cellulose, for example, you find in really good quality paper. So it's actually it's what we use, for example, for paper and so on, or what we use in cotton. Cotton has a lot of high crystallinity cellulose. Right? So in those cases, it seems that fungi can break partly that material. The rest of it will remain in the forest floor and eventually will decompose very slowly and one day will be completely decomposed, but that will take a lot more time. But what does a, a log look like when it's mostly cellulose? Is it, is it mm. uh, you know, like a hard matrix? Is it crumbly? I mean, what does cellulose no, look like? It, that? it more looks like a sponge. Imagine this as a sponge that has a quite uh, fibrillose appearance and is very easy to pull apart. So it doesn't have any, any it doesn't remind that much wood anymore. It looks more like a, like you took wood and you may use red it into fibers, right? That's what a piece of wood from at least the majority of the fungi. So that would be a well decomposed piece of wood from what we call the white rot fungi. So this is the majority of wood decomposers. However, there is a smaller group of fungi that we call the brown rot fungi. And in this case, the composition for those fungi is very different. So what they do, they have figured out a way to break down all carbohydrates, cellulose and hemicellulose in wood, without decomposing at all uh, lignin, or maybe not at all is not completely right, or at least partly decomposing lignin. So in this case, if you go out, if we were walking out in the forest together, and I would show you the different these two different types, you would see that when you have brown rot wood, you would see that the wood looks more like it breaks down into small cubes, let's say. And then if you try to, to touch that material, it crumbles into dust and it's really brown in color because what is mostly left here is lignin. In contrast, when you have the white rot fungi that I talked um, about before, you have a lot of cellulose left behind and that's why you have this fibrillose appearance. So you have these two different types of uh, well-decomposed wood or wood remnants that you will find in a forest after maybe, I would say, in a temperate forest, you will probably see this in about two years, I would say, or a little bit longer, depending again, as I said, on the climate. So what does a, a decomposed tree look like where there's a lot of lignin left versus cellulose? It would look a lot more, as I said, it would look more like broken into a lot of smaller cubical parts. It's a very characteristic thing that you should look about it when you go next time into a forest. You, if you peel the bark of those fallen trees, you will see that the wood inside is, is broken into cubical parts. And if you try to grab one of those parts, they are very easy to, they are very brittle. So they are very easy to break into dust. So this is brown rot. The white rot, if you peel again the bark of those fallen trees, you will see that you have a, something that looks a lot like sponge and it can really hold a lot of water, for example, and it's very fibrillose. And this is mostly 
what is left in those cases is a lot of cellulose in that material. Hmm. Okay. Uh, what happens if an animal dies in various forests, you know, in the jungle versus a temperate forest? Uh, do fungi go after it? And what, what do they do? What's their role? It will be, the process will be similar to what happens. The timing will be similar to what we explained in for the plant issues. So if you have an Arctic environment, if you have a very cold environment, the composition will be much slower. And that's why, for example, you have certain mammals and other animals being very well preserved in very cold environments because the composition is very slow or almost zero. While in the tropics, the composition is very fast. So if an animal dies, it will decompose very quickly. But in those cases, for animal tissues, it seems that bacteria are those that cause the majority of the composition. And fungi do not seem to be so well adapted to break down animal tissues. It's usually bacteria take over the composition of animal tissues. Okay. Uh, what about if there's a fire in a forest? I guess there's so I guess there are mushrooms that will associate it with trees and other organisms while they're alive. And there's ones mm -hmm. that will associate with them when they're dead and chew them up. And then I guess there's other ones after a fire that will come in, right? Mm -hmm. like what, what are the different niches that fungi go after? I guess living, dead, post-fire, what else do you see? Oh, there is a lot. There is a lot to talk about here. On this. So let's take first um, living versus dead uh, trees and plants in general. So you have those fungi that they are parasitic, right? And what they're, they, they feed on a plant tissue while the plant is still alive, right? And we call those parasitic fungi on plants. And then you can find them on the bark or on the stem of the tree. You can find them on the roots or you can find them on the leaves, right? And they can cause various diseases. Sometimes they can kill the plant or other times they can... Of course, the plant will not be at its best at its best condition, but the, the, the fungus will not kill the plant in this case. And those we call biotrophic parasites. Uh, while the, the other parasites that will kill the plant, we call them necrotrophic parasites, right? They kill their host and then they feed on it. So these are all parasitic fungi, and they have a very important role in ecosystems because you can imagine some trees basically can live forever. So it's a in a way, these fungi carry the role of gradually killing some of those trees in the forest and then allowing younger trees to come and grow, right? Um, then we have those fungi that they are purely saprotrophic, right? And they, they can be wood decomposers, so the tree dies from a storm or from another parasitic fungus, and then the saprotrophic wood decomposer will come in and gradually break down those tissues. And we have, of course, saprotrophic fungi that they live in the soil. And we have to mention here that soils are just amazing, uh, super diverse environments for microbes, right? So in a gram of soil, you can have thousands of different species of microbes. So you have a lot of those saprotrophic fungi that what they do, they make sure that anything that falls on the ground, leaves, fruit, uh, branches, and so on, will eventually decompose and become part of the soil. So now, so far, we talked about those parasitic and those who are free-living saprotrophic organisms, right, fungi. But we also have those fungi that they are, let's say, uh, they form mutualistic relationships. So they are friends of trees, right? So what they do, they colonize the roots, and we call those fungi mycorrhizal fungi. What they do, they will grow into the soil. They will scavenge nutrients, for example, 
uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, metals, but also water. And they will, they will act as an extensive root system of the plant. And then they will bring those nutrients and give some of those nutrients to the tree. In exchange, once the tree has these nutrients, we give back to the fungus carbon sources, for example, sugars that has produced through photosynthesis, right? So this is a, a give and take relationship between the two organisms where the, the plant provides carbon compounds, sugars, and then the fungus provides very basic nutrients, for example, nitrogen, phosphorus, and that they are very important for tree growth. And there is plenty of experiments that have shown, like today is very well established, that we know that certain fungi, if you do an experiment where you have the same um, plant species, several individuals, and you have some of them colonized, the roots are colonized by the mycorrhizal fungus versus your control, which is the plants that they, the roots are not colonized by the fungus. And you can see measurable differences in the growth of the plants that they associate with the fungus. So we know that these fungi have a good effect, a positive effect in plant growth, right? And one last okay. thing that I did then, one last How thing. often, uh, one quick question, how often is there an association or not an association between, you know, trees, mature trees and fungi? And would you have to dig, you know, around the roots to find the fungi or is it obvious? Are there like continuous mushrooms around trees or, you know, what have you observed? They are basically most of plant species, they form mutualistic associations with mycorrhizal fungi, most tree species. So, and there are, of course, many different types now of mycorrhizal fungi that maybe we don't need to get into those details. But basically, is if you go at any given tree, let's say if you, you'd see a poplar tree, right? If you were able to sample around that tree on, in the roots, you will see that it's not only one mycorrhizal fungus, but many times one tree can have several different species of mycorrhizal fungi on its roots. So there's a very active community below ground of mycorrhizal fungi that they work in connection with the tree to provide a lot of nutrients, and in return, they take some of the sugars. Mm -hmm. So it's, I would say it's very difficult to actually find a tree that will not have a mycorrhizal fungus. Even, for example, if you think grasses, grasses have also very frequently mycorrhizal fungi on the roots. A lot of the vegetables we eat, for example, carrots, will form mycorrhizal associations with specific fungi, right? So it's, they are very widespread. They literally feed the plants around the globe we just rarely see them, rarely notice them, right? We mostly see the plants. We never see the fungi that easily, at least. Hmm. Okay. So um, what kind of questions are you trying to answer with your research? It looks like you, you, know, you understand the composition and the association, possibly, at least partially. But what's, you know, again, what's unanswered for you? There is plenty that is not answered. So as I explained before, there is... Um, these two different major types of wood decomposition, that's a big part of my, of my research, is trying to develop new methods to understand how fungi approach these polymers that we find in wood. Uh, and we want to develop in a way, to, to, to present this in a very simple way, we, dis, we try to, dis, to develop new eyes, techniques that we can use in order to see better how the composition proceeds, right? And this is very important because not only from we want to be able to quantify the composition, for example, and that is very important for the ecosystems to understand how carbon cycling and nutrient cycling takes place in terrestrial ecosystems. 
And that is important because it's connected to the health of soils, is connected to climate change, is connected to carbon, carbon budgets in soils. But also, um, there is a very, from my side, there is a very strong inter- interest to understand using genome sequences to understand how these processes have evolved. So we can compare the genomes of different fungi, and then we can do analysis and try to understand when, for example, the ability of fungi to break down wood tissues appeared. And now we have more or less an estimate of when this happened, right? So we know that um, a few years ago, we published a paper where we were showing that wood decay fungi, they seem to discover, to, to develop the ability to break down wood tissues around 300 to 350 million years ago. And that coincides very nicely because with... How would you know that, by the way? How would would science know that? uh, So there is a a different tools that you can use. One is that we have fossil data, and we know that at least the oldest type of decay wood that we have found is around 200, if I remember correctly, 280, 270 million years old. It comes from the Permian. Uh, But then also when you use molecular sequences, when you use genomic sequences, you can do what we call molecular clock analysis. So basically you can use the sequences and based on the rate of mutations that these sequences, to explain it in a very simple way, you can estimate how much time has passed since a specific um, two species separated from each other, for example, right? Or a specific event in the evolution of those fungi happened. So by using these tools, we have estimated that it was about 300 million years ago when a lot of those systems, they seem to have been established, right? And of course, you should keep in mind, this is not just one time thing. These systems appeared around 300 million years ago, but they have been evolving since then, right? Think about it as a battle between plants and fungi. So plants try to protect their tissues from decomposition and fungi try to find better ways to decompose wood. So continuously, those two systems over millions of years, they have been learning how to better the plants defend themselves and fungi how to better attack wood and degrade it, right? Um, Are there there substances or compounds or creatures that fungi never touch or won't touch or rarely touch? Not really. (laughs) I think, well, I think that uh, if you look at the, if you look mammals, partly also birds, I think, we are the only type of organisms that fungi will not attack so easily. And if you ask why this is the case, is because we have a higher body temperature. So this seems to be something that fungi do not seem to like. And there is a lot of emerging theories, uh, whether even the evolution of mammals like us and like elephants and all these uh, creatures that they have uh, temperature regulation, uh, whether these happened actually to avoid a lot of the fungal pathogens that are out there. But yeah, I, I would say that maybe um, mammals would be quite well protected because of their higher temperature from fungi, but even, even mammals are susceptible to fungal diseases. As for plants, I would say that pretty much any plant will be either will have some kind of pathogen or will eventually be decomposed by a fungus, right? They have such a universal role in breaking down organic matter once an organism is dead that pretty much they play, uh, they are found everywhere having this role. Okay. 
But again, there's nothing that you've seen that uh, fungi tend to avoid. And do they, you know, dead plants that are not woody, do they feed on them? And I seem to certainly feed on animals, but is there anything that they stay away from? There are certain compounds they prefer to avoid, and plants produce quite a lot of chemicals that they have their role to deter fungi from attacking them, right, and causing decomposition. Lignin itself is one of those large polymers, large substances that fungi produce and they embed in their wood tissues in order to make sure that fungi will not decompose wood. Of course, unsuccessfully, and fungi do not like lignin, but at the same time, they have figured out ways how to cope with it, right? So they will break it down, but they will not use it as a carbon source. So lignin tannins are also um, compounds that fungi do not seem to like. And if possible, they will avoid them or they will just ignore them when they are in a tissue. Uh, So there are certain chemicals that plants produce and fungi do not like, but there are no, to my knowledge at least, there are no specific plants that definitely fungi will avoid, right? Hmm. Yeah, it would just be interesting if there were certain substances they stayed away from that repelled them, but uh, there's not much, huh? There is some certain... There are certain compounds like tannins, for example, the, those that they make a lot of, for example, tissues bitter, right? These are compounds that also fungi do not seem to like. They can be toxic, lignin itself. And then, of course, um, there are, I would say that all plants will eventually be decomposed by fungi. And if they would not, they would just accumulate on the surface of earth, right? So everything eventually decomposes from those plants and trees. But there are some types of wood, for example, that are more resistant to decomposition than others. And that can be a lot of different factors. For example, we know that oak wood or um, cedar wood are more resistant to decomposition than, for example, poplar wood, right? And the reason for this is that it's it's many factors. It has to do with the density of wood, has to do with the amount of lignin that is deposited in the wood tissue, but also with extra compounds that the plant produces. So, for example, we know that oak wood has a lot of tannins, and that's why it will decompose much slower than other wood types, simply because fungi will have a difficult time dealing with those compounds, so the composition will be quite slow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, are you able to characterize like how good a job bacteria will decompose various items versus fungi like are fungi essentially in a class of their own where they're far better decomposers than you know any other creature as much as i would like to say this no (laughs) fungi are not they're better they're really good are breaking down complex plant plant tissues for example wood tissues bacteria are not so good at decomposing intact wood right but then when you look at other materials for example what is left in soil you have a lot of these Uh, leftovers of the degradation of wood and leaves and so on, bacteria are really good at utilizing those and breaking them even further into smaller molecules in order to utilize them as a carbon and energy source. So I wouldn't say that necessarily fungi are better than bacteria, but for certain things, fungi are better. So for example, wood tissues, and we know that intact, intact lignin that is found in wood can be decomposed only by a very particular group of fungi, what I called before the white rot fungi. We know that there are not that many other organisms on the planet that can break down lignin. So you to give you an idea how recalcitrant that material is. Mm, okay. 
So what, what are some future experiments that you're contemplating? What are you trying to figure out going forward with fungi? So there is a lot of open questions to try to get deeper into fungi, how fungi break down cellulose. And that is of particular interest because not only for ecosystem processes and a lot of the fundamental questions, but also because we want to understand this process because obviously we have an interest to use cellulose and wood tissues in order to produce, for example, biofuels, right? So we are focusing heavily at the moment on trying to develop these new methodologies in order to understand to get a more detailed picture of cellulose decomposition. And we published some of that material recently. But also I have a, lot, a very strong interest on how lignin is, is approached by fungi, right? So a lot of my research is focusing on, on exactly understanding these processes in detail. Um, at the same time, I have a very strong interest on what we call biomaterials. And this is a very, right now is a very trending field uh, where a lot of people are trying to use fungal mycelia as an alternative uh, to produce new type of materials, for example, to replace gradually plastics and so on. This research is still very, I would say, very early to, to develop, to really commercialize it, even though you can already find out there commercial products that they contain mycelia. So this is, I think, is a very exciting area of research. And I have been collaborating with architecture department at Lund University. So we have pull forces together, two architects, and we are trying to design materials that will contain fungal mycelia, right? And we're trying to understand a little bit their properties. For example, if they can be used for sound insulation or if they slow down fire and so on. This is a very active area of research at the moment. And I would say that we are still at the very start of this research, not only my team, but in general in the world. Have you studied fungi that come in after a fire and what do they eat if so i haven't i haven't studied them myself but there is a lot of research done in we call them pyrophilic fungi right the the fungi that love fire that would be if you break it down in greek and these fungi seem to be very good to colonize environments that have been recently exposed to fire right so if you go up on the on those forest fires that you get in the summer in colorado or in california and then you go one, two years later, during usually the autumn period, you will find a lot of fruit bodies of this pyrophilic fungi. And this fungi, they seem, is not that they enjoy eating the charcoal. This is not their necessarily their job. What they do, though, they can withstand the very, I would say, extreme environment that you have in a soil after a fire. So what usually happens after a fire not only you have a lot of charcoal accumulating, also the pH of that soil is usually quite high, and that makes it an extreme environment. Also, you have a lot of ash accumulating, and that makes that soil quite hydrophobic, so it cannot hold a lot of water. So a lot of those fungi that they come after forest fires are amazing organisms because they can deal with those conditions. They can gradually cause the composition of whatever material is left, and many of them can even help plants to reestablish in this environment, right? So, for example, those um, mycorrhizal fungi that we were discussing before, there are species that they are very good at growing in environments that they have very little nutrients, or they are very harsh environments, like environments after fire. So they help the seeds of trees to 
start growing into seedlings, right? So they come very early in the recolonization of those areas by trees, and they play important role in mobilizing nutrients and making sure that these young trees will have what they need in order to survive and grow healthy. Okay, very good. Well, Demetrius, uh, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Um, mostly they can visit they can visit the webpage at the university, and that's where we post a lot of the things of our interests. That's the best way to find me. Of course, uh, I'll be happy if, if, if anyone wants to talk to me directly, they, can, they will find also my email address at the university and they can talk to me directly, they can write to me. Frequently, I, I don't have, I'm, I'm a bit of an old-fashioned, I don't have a Twitter account but that I use, that I have, for example, a Facebook page that occasionally I post things about my research. So that I would, I would say these are the ways to find me. And of course, for the for the people who work in the in the scientific community, they cannot they can they usually find me through my publications, right? All right, very good. Well, Demetrios, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. It was it it, it was a pleasure. I, I enjoy talking about fungi, so that that is fun. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.